This episode is brought to you by Sport Yogi, the app that introduces yoga, mindfulness, and meditation to athletes, all without the fluff that usually comes with it. From building flexibility to harnessing your focus and anxiety and much more, Sport Yogi gives you simple to follow sessions that you can easily add into your everyday training or everyday life. To get started, simply visit sportyogi.com forward slash join dash now. And listeners of the show can receive 40% off annual and lifetime plans by using the code raising your game at checkout. So once again, that is sportyogi.com forward slash join dash now to get started. Welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast, where I help connect well-being and performance, as well as speaking to those in the world of sport to share the experiences, practice and wisdom that can help you in raising your game both on and off the field. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Lewis Hatchett, and in this episode, I'm joined by three-time Olympian, Olympic silver medalist, and world champion rower, Kath Bishop. But before we start the episode, as always, the only ask I have of this show is that whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on, please take that finger for a wonder and hit the subscribe button. It is the cheapest and easiest way that you can support this show and I thank you so much for being able to join us, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, it really does mean the world. But on to today's episode, and like I mentioned, I'm joined with Kath Bishop, three-time Olympian, Olympic silver medalist, and world champion rower. Not only that, Kath served time as a foreign diplomat for over a decade, and Kath specialised in conflict issues with postings in Bosnia and Iraq, as well as stabilising conflicts around the world. So our discussion, we go into a range of topics from the Tokyo Games to the value of all medals, gold, silver and bronze and what success looks like and the shift that we believe society can take away from outcome focused success. We also talk about a range of subjects in Kath's book, The Long Win. And Kath is super knowledgeable in not only sport in the internal sense, but the power it has in society and as well as her experiences of being a foreign diplomat. This was a super interesting conversation that I'm so excited to bring to you. So without any hesitation, I give you Kath Bishop. Enjoy. Kath, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and doing this. Um, we're just saying that it was uh, Lawrence Halstead who recommended getting you on and um, previous podcast guest. And um, had you, had, how have have you been recently? I mean, you've probably been busy with a lot of the Olympics going on and and been a hectic sort of month, and even the Paralympics coming up as well. So, how have you been? Yeah, it's a busy summer of sport, isn't it? And a great one to see athletes back out there. So yeah, absolutely. Pretty busy, involved in lots of different ways. Um, not actually out there. So, you mm. know, back here commentating or commenting and uh, supporting. Um, and we actually in the in the sport of rowing, we had our uh, Henry Royal Gatta that was delayed and, and held in August. And that was kind of a great opportunity for schools and clubs and universities to get out racing and rowing again last week. So um yeah, it's just good to see sport back in our lives, isn't it? I did see that about the Henry Henley Regatta. Like there was, it was a lot less people, is what I'd heard. Um, 
And um, what is that whole? It's quite. It's very famous, but I've never gone to it. I've never seen it. What's that whole experience like? Well, you must come. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I have the honour of being a part of a group of about sixty stewards. Basically, we we run it ourselves. So it's a whole range of uh, former athletes and umpires, and you know, all sorts of people involved with our sport, all at sorts of different levels, um, under the chairmanship of Steve Redgrave. Um, and so we do the duties of start lines and finish lines and umpiring, all those different things. And I think we knew that obviously um, it couldn't take part in July and we knew it would be under with smaller numbers. But we wanted to hold a regatta for the athletes, for the rowers, mm. for those who trained on rowing machines throughout the winter, very grimly. And we wanted to give them an opportunity to race uh, because it's just such a highlight of the rowing year. And it was wonderful to see, yeah, just, you know, the joy of racing again, the joy of the rowing community coming back together again. And although some of the spectator numbers were, were of course, down and mm. it's holidays time and people are still cautious, but we felt we could hold it safely with some clear modifications, lots more spacing out. But it's all primarily outdoors. Um, and we have YouTube coverage of all the racing now with brilliant sort of drone camera shots and all of that. So yeah. it was just the joy of the rowing community to be back together again was was really special. And for people that don't actually know anything about it, what does it consist of? Like who who goes, who's competing, um, and and what are the what are the events? Yeah. So the really lovely thing is that there's an event almost at, at every level. There are um, events for schoolboys and schoolgirls. And there are events for clubs, so people who've got full-time jobs. And then there are sort of open international events. And that's the really lovely thing. Rowing is a sport where mm. you don't sort of have these celebrities. You brush sh everyone brushes shoulders. That's a really nice thing that you have, you know, schoolboys racing at one minute. And then you had Tokyo Olympic champions racing the next. So we had a number of athletes from Ireland, from Canada and from the British team who came back and raced because they mm. love racing. They wanted to be in front of a home crowd. And that was really lovely and, of course, inspirational. We had some of the members of the, the men's quad who won a silver medal in Tokyo racing, bringing their medal, you know, showing it around the boat tents with all the schoolboy, schoolgirl crews. It's really special. So let's actually ha have a chat about Tokyo. What were your, I mean, from a rowing standpoint, there were, Britain has been a powerhouse in that department for a long time. And a lot of it at the moment was around sort of how we didn't actually get as much as we'd had in previous games. Um, what was the kind of general feel around British rowing? I think it was the director of rowing that came out and I'm not sure if it's the director of rowing. You might you definitely correct me, but he came out and said that British rowing is in a transitional period. You're in it's mm. in a growth stage, and actually it's Paris that they were they were going for. Is that sort of about right in the feel in the the rowing community? Yeah. I think so. If you take the narrow snapshot of a medal table, it's definitely not where we want to be. It's not where we've been for the last few decades. Mm. But I think these things happen that you have a kind of period where we had a lot of changeover of the chief coach, of the performance director. And actually, we had a much higher turnover of athletes after Rio the normal. So usually we would have sort of 50, 60 percent of the squad are returning Olympians. They've got that experience. Mm. And unusually in Tokyo, we were down at sort of 20 to 30 percent. So that just has a has an impact. We then had six fourth places. You know, that yeah, happens. I remember it happening to swimming a while ago. Uh, and it's hugely unlucky. And of course, you've got to make sure you're on the right side and, and don't yeah. let that happen. But, you know, you can still see that it's not as if we were far off the medals. So with a young team to be getting fourth places, we actually had... 10 crews in an A final. So there are only six in Rome that get to the final. So we had 10 crews making that top six, which is also a great sign 
for Paris. Mm. And it shows there's a consistency and a depth. We just didn't have the top end quite where it has been in the past. And of course, people are really quick to, to jump and to criticise. And, you know, there needs to be scrutiny about how we are spending money as a sport, about the decisions that are made, the investments that are made. But we've had uh, medalists still at the under 23s in the last few years, which also shows us we've got people coming through. And actually, we weren't able to bring athletes through to the senior squad because of the bubble system, because of COVID. So in lockdown, it meant that where there might have been some up and coming athletes that could have come through quicker, we just couldn't do that because mm. we weren't all training. People were training at home. There was no way mm. of testing and developing the next generation. So as always, it's multifactorial. Yeah. Um, but I think there's lots of confidence. Uh, it's not easy, of course, you know, everyone around the world is raising their game but uh i think there's lots of confidence that there's no reason why we can't perform and be back up at a, a really you know high levels in in paris again that's that's something i think people probably don't get the context of is actually with a sport like rowing you do actually need to have time on water you need to be with a partner you need to be with the team and gelling that and if it's a fresh team if it's fresh fresh athletes like that time hasn't been there and it's so easy for people to criticize from the outside just because they don't see that success. Now, with that, that theme of success, we saw a lot of criticism and there was a lot of chat online around the state of or what people perceived as success at the Olympics. And people who were, whether it was stirring the pot for whatever reason, they putting out tweets and and articles around if you're not first you're last sort of context and and sort of ideas now what was your I I know you put out an Instagram post which I I I really liked and what what do you believe is around this whole talk of of success and winning medals and and people not celebrating bronzes and silvers and even the fourth places because I mean like you said just said there it is such narrow margins between the the first and the fourth and even first and eighth like there's such narrow margins um so what is your your take on that whole chat and discussion around success and what it means to to each individual and people outside of the sport i guess Mm, so i mean this is a topic i've been fascinated by and fascinated by not just in sport but also in business education politics our obsession with what winning what success looks like and realizing that we've often come to define it in a very narrow way that actually is quite self-defeating. Mm. I think we're in a transition and Tokyo showed me that the athletes don't really think like this anymore. Uh, even Michael Johnson was sort of talking about how it's about delivering your best performance, whatever that means, and you will have different expectations. You will come into it with different physiology that will determine to some extent what's possible mm. or not. And you can't have a great Olympic final unless everyone plays their role. So it makes no sense to rubbish people who finish second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. They've played a role in how that race has gone, the tactical decisions they've made, the, the way they've stretched their possibilities, their potential, the way they played a role in who actually ultimately does come out in top. That winner can't do it without the others creating those kind of incredible mm. moments of performance. And we know that in sports psychology now, athletes don't think about or obsess about winning because it doesn't help you to win. 
So there's this separation between thinking about your performance and the results you get. You cannot control the results. It's going to depend not just on your opponents, but often on other factors. Luck can play a role. Umpires, referees, weather, injuries, all sorts of things that you can't control. What you need to do as an athlete is focus on delivering your best performance. So we see lots of athletes measuring success in terms of their PBs. Have I gone faster than I've ever gone before? Well, at an Olympic Games, you can't ask for much more than that. And then I'll look at the result. I'll look at how others did around me. I'll look at the decisions I made and how I performed and think, okay, can I improve some of that next time? So it's a much more sustainable mindset. It's a much more healthy mindset that avoids the kind of crazy roller coaster of being a complete hero if you win and a complete nobody if you don't. Mm. You're actually a human being with the same value at the beginning of the Olympics and the end of the Olympics. And it doesn't make sense for us to rubbish the best athletes in the world because they didn't quite come out on top of this narrow snapshot on this particular day in time. So I think we see a, a much healthier approach that is trying to be brought into sport lots of the elite athletes themselves are now talking about that I think sometimes you know coaches are often you know very much part of this as well if they care about the long-term career of their athlete Mm. and not just winning the next race then they start to see things differently but you know there's definitely pockets of sport where this hasn't yet broken through and there is a sort of you know be all and end or kind of you know rocky Sylvester Stallone mentality that is frankly outdated and doesn't help performance either and it's such a unique world the olympics because you are asking these athletes to compete at their very best on one day on on one well one day maybe heats semi-finals predicting but but ultimately when it comes down to that final it is one day now imagine that asking that of every single person in the world and be like right well when do you when do you feel like catching a cold? When do you feel like just not fit, having that just poor bit of sleep? Or I know elite athletes, it's it's all a lot of stuff like that is in their control. But there is so there are so many factors that aren't in their control. And I think of like Adam Adam Jamili when he he ran and he tore his hamstring in the warm up, and you just oh, think like that is just so heartbreaking. Like he's so ready. And that's where team sports like your footballs, your rugby's, crickets and everything like that are so different because they are your success is built and determined over a culmination of results over a period of time. Um, if the it would be really interesting if the Olympics almost well, you've got the Diamond League and things like that, but if you had if the Olympics was almost the the last culmination of a a year or four years of results over a period of time, it probably would turn out quite different. Um you never know. But I think that that rhetoric is definitely changing between people who and de- and, it, and it's so funny how it does it always comes from people who have never been in the sport yeah. <laughs> they've never competed maybe a day in their life they've never been at that level they've never felt those pressures and what I found really refreshing was the unity in the athletes so all of them coming out whether it was cross disciplines or whether it was within the same discipline they were all promoting the same idea i don't think that that's not a coincidence that is showing a change in the times exactly as you said so what's interesting is that I feel the media hadn't really moved on. So the interviewers ask a totally results medal yep. obsessed question, but the athletes now are starting to not fall into the trap, but to create mm. their own story about what this meant for them. So again, there's always this narrative of, Oh, fourth place. It's the worst place to finish. Well, 
actually step back a minute. If you offered an athlete, would you rather come fourth or fifth? They'd say fourth. I've come seventh and ninth. That wasn't great either after I'd underperformed. And so actually what we saw was athletes who come forth with a brilliant performance, being mm. rightly proud of it. I think sort of Imogen Grant in the lightweight double skulls where they were sort of 0.01 off a bronze medal, you know, immediately able to put it in a context of mm. having executed their best race plan, having performed consistently, you know, through the rounds to get there, having got through a year where they were PBing on the rowing machine in their living rooms, managing lockdown, managing all the other curveballs thrown at them, and able to say, you know, you win or you learn. And mm. that's what I think we see that sits at the heart of this different mindset is a learning approach. Whatever happens, if I, even when you win, you're just learning for next time. Mm. And that's one of the things that gives athletes uh, a healthier outlook and the resilience to deal with results that don't always go your way because it's just always going to learn from it. And again, that's something that we're taught much more within, uh, you know, the high performance environment now. Regardless of results, you review your performance. And even if you've won, you've done some things that you need to improve. You've done things well, you've done things you need to improve. And then you have to decide, what am I going to do different next time? And you actually ask those same questions, whether you've won or come last, because you've always done stuff well. I mean, I had races I lost, but there were elements of them or I had done some things at a really world-class level. Of course, I'd done other things that weren't, and that's why the result wasn't there. But it'd be crazy to throw those things away because the result is poor. So we have to get really good at thinking about what's working, what isn't quite working well enough, and how do I change? And this constant learning mindset is what gives athletes that resilience to deal with a bad result, a bad heat, and, and yet move on without suddenly crashing into you know, the abyss of, oh, I'm a failure, I'm worthless. And that's an approach that I think would be much more helpful outside of sport as well, so that you know, things don't go our way and we can't control everything we get, whether that's in business or in schools, exams, whatever it might be. But each time we are out there performing, trying, experimenting, exploring, we can take something for next time. Yeah, it really is that definition of like pressure and anxiety is just trying to control things you can't control. You just, if you're, if you're just expectation is to, for only outcome, um, it was really interesting, Frances Horton, she spoke about how she had transited sort of in her, I think, fourth or fifth games, she had transitioned away from outcome and she enjoyed it more. So it was actually more of an enjoyment thing because, geez, if you're in sport, like you're doing it to enjoy it as well. Like you have to be enjoying this. And this is where you do see the athletes that fall out of the sport, burn out, really struggle mentally as if it's just become a chore rather than a, a, a an enjoyment and a love for why you do it. I'd be interested to know. Sorry, did you have something there? Well, I just I just want to say that it reminds me of one of the things that when I was researching my book about the long win, it's probably you're you're coming on mm. to anyway. Um, the thing that shocked me was how many winners were also depressed or empty or unfulfilled by winning. Yeah. And that for me was a different thing because if this old narrative is saying it's all about winning, you know, you're only, you know, you're only a hero or it only matters if you win. Great. You'd, you'd mm. imagine that if you win, it would be absolutely bloody amazing. Mm. And I was really shocked to find winners saying, well, I was told this was it, you know, the rest of my life was going to be great. And of course it isn't. You're the same human being with the same flaws that you had two hours ago before you went to race your Olympic final. Yeah. Um, we've heard people like Johnny Wilkinson speaking out, saying about this, 
crazy, almost mindless chase for the next cap, the next trophy, winning the World Cup and thinking that the joy would come, but the joy never came. And I, mm. that's really where I think, uh, you know, for me, I thought, gosh, winning is certainly not working. If it isn't even working for the winners, we have got something wrong here. Mm. And of course, the experience we have on the way that you were referenced there with, with Fran Halton uh, is so important because it's not okay to have a medal if you've gone through some of the experiences, for example, that the gymnasts have gone through. That yeah. is not success. No, yeah. Obviously, with doping, that's the same thing. So I think it's really important, therefore, I'm always kind of trying to get at the stories behind. What does the story that your medal represent? That's what really matters because that's what lasts. That's what you take with you. That's what you retell when you step off the podium and go into whatever comes next in your life, whether it's more racing or a different part of your life. Uh, and when you encounter others who want to ask about your Olympic experience, that's where the meaning behind the medal is, is, is what's important. And this medal table doesn't show us that. Yeah, that's a really nice even little phrase there, meaning behind the, meaning behind the medal. Um, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen after this Olympics because through, like you mentioned there, there has there has been this post-Olympic depression that has been very well voiced from many athletes. And it'd be so interesting to see what happens here because it, we're in a real tug of war with some battles for, for negative mental health experiences through whether it's social media, media, expectations. Uh, I mean, Simone Biles was a big, big, uh, mm. name obviously that was put up in lights throughout not only for her, her expectation of performance but what she went through during the olympics but actually now the openness and the the talk around these issues and the talk around the experiences of the athletes i'm really interested to see what happens over this say the next six to 12 months with those athletes and whether it's worse better um i don't know if you have any thoughts on that whether you feel it's it's going to be better than it has been before or whether it could even be worse because there are so many more people coming at you essentially. So I think it's a big challenge now. The athletes have said we are, we are seeing this differently. We are experiencing it. We want a different experience. We want to look after our mental health. We want to try and make sure that we can have the careers uh, you know, to last as long as, as is possible, not to, not to make these sort of shortcuts that could threaten our careers. We want to step back, as Simone Biles did, in order to enable sustainable success. The challenge now is whether the structures, the leadership in sport, whether the policies, if you like, can shift accordingly to take account of these things. And that's a little bit my fear, because we are seeing this being athlete-led, and we actually need some of the structures to catch up with what they're saying, to prioritize mental health, to educate uh, all of those working in a high performance environment, that they actually have a responsibility for this. I think we've become a little bit siloed in terms of specialisms and whether it's we've got the biomechanics specialist there and the, the physiologist here and the, the, the psychologist and the nutritionist. But actually, they're all responsible for creating a safe environment for that athlete to thrive in. But we've sort of lost track of that part of the responsibility in kind of overdefining and, and again narrowing the the sort of uh, official scientific responsibility that they might have. So we do need to rethink the environments. So, I mean, there are a lot of performance directors who get this, mm. um, but there's also an education process going on because it hasn't been how things happened, you know, in uh, in, in a lot of sports in in the last twenty years. And that sort of medals being the be all and end all has kind of moved the focus away 
away from that broader, healthier environment. So there is a bit of a, a challenge there to make sure we can shift back. Again, it's a transition. Some some people have got this, um, but others who, who've thrived under a system of winning medals, uh, you know, have got some adjustments to do. You, you mentioned about coaches having that um, that responsibility for the athletes post their career and, and like their their entire career being responsible for their entire career, not just the next race, not just that. And I think that, again, probably should go up a little bit higher. That should be the organizations themselves are responsible for every part of what that athlete goes through and experiences and then the transition that happens post-career I mean in my sport cricket the PCA do a really good job in preparing you for when your career ends because there are multiple facets obviously in an, in an athlete's world that could happen you could just be dropped you could just lose your contract you could again fall out of form and, and move away and you could have what happened to me which is get injured and then you're just dropped out so that is there's so many different realms and, and with the churn rates of athletes, whether it's through Olympic sport, professional team sports, there there has to be that collective from the structures to to really look at it in a holistic approach. Like, okay, are we, yes, we want to have success, but we're not going to really have success if we're just churning people in and breaking them by the time they come out and then thinking that society is going to fix them when technically most of society can be broken in many different areas. So it's a, you're right, the structures have got to create that, that environment. Yeah, and it's having that responsibility for the athlete after the medal, isn't it? Yeah. It's the story that they that they take with them. What's the story they're going to tell? Because that has a big impact on the next generation, on yeah. whether they're giving back to the sport, whether they're inspiring next generation, whether they have a story that, that others want to hear, or whether they might actually have a, a story that would put off the next yeah. generation or, or certainly put off certain certain members of the next generation. So I think that's really important. And, and then we need to think more about um, quality rather than quantity. So, uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't think there's any proof that we, you know, 60 medals is better than 50 medals, you know, okay. You know, winning one gold medal in Atlanta was clearly not a good reflection of the sporting talent of this country. Well, we seem to be quite obsessed about whether we're fourth or fifth in the medal table. And I don't think that has any impact on the nation. There is no research that suggests that's particularly critical. And mm -hmm. I therefore think, you know, we're in a really good place, frankly, being in the top 10. Let's think about the quality of the medal. How much mm. could we actually sort of learn and have as a, as a lasting impact from those medals? What's the, you know, the real kind of lasting inspiration that comes from them? Because we have this sort of mantra in UK sport that we're creating inspirational moments. Yeah. To me, that feels a little transient. Mm. I'd like us to be actually more ambitious, not about winning more medals, but about what those moments could translate into. Yeah. There isn't much research, you know, well, we know that it's not creating participation at the moment. So why don't we start exploring whether we could make some better links there, whether we could do things in a different way and whether these stories that we're telling are actually also playing a role. And, and again, we have seen that when athletes are put on a pedestal, it doesn't inspire people watching to do anything at all because they just think, oh, they're superhuman. I can't do that. Yeah. So you know, that's part of, again, this narrative that I want to break down because they aren't superhuman. They are incredible human beings. And that's one of the things, you know, every time they're called superhuman, actually we do them a disservice by putting them on a pedestal that at some point they will have to fall off because nobody wins forever. Mm -hmm. And we also then distance themselves from us watching 
uh, where when maybe we could connect with them a little more and, and be a little more inspired by them. And that's why I think, you know, this, this framing of success, the language we use around it is so important to think more carefully about. And that's why the athletes doing it themselves, the athletes are not saying they're superhuman, which is really interesting. So it's not them that are saying it. You've got people like even in cricket, like Ben Stokes, that's taken a mental health break, Simone Biles, like these, I said it in a previous podcast, like if you're a young athlete, I put myself back in being a 10 year old or 12 year old or whatever. And I, all the self doubts that I've naturally got, all of perhaps the insecurities that I'm, I'm thinking, maybe not externalizing, but thinking, and then something I see, this hero that I'm going and watching and seeing on TV come out and say like, I've, I'm feeling self-doubt. I'm feeling that I'm burning out. And you're like, oh my God, he feels exactly how I feel. Now I've connected yeah. with them. And you're like, I get it now. And I think that that is so being led by the athletes themselves, which is just a beautiful place for us to be in. It is. And we need to hear it and we need to change. We need to shift away from, again, you know, the, the sort of media narrative that that is still pushed really hard. Um, I think the Kennys were great role models. You know, whenever yeah. they're, again, given the sort of the hype and the big up and you're Olympic champion, you're the most decorated Olympian ever, all of this. And, and they just come back in the most normal, wonderfully normal way yeah. about, you know, Laura Kenny was like, I'm just going to keep turning up, see how it goes. And yeah. and the great sort of heroic way in which um, it looked like um, Jason Kenny won the Kieran. And afterwards, there was all this sort of interview about, you know, oh, God, that was so bold. And when did you decide on that strategy? And he said, well, I wasn't that keen to be drawn at the front of the pack in that number one position. And just before the start, I said to my coach, if I get a gap, do you think I should go? And coach wasn't that sure and said oh well you know only if you think it's really big enough and that was it and then they were off and I just loved that because it was so human it's a sort of conversation you would have at work do you think we should do this with this new product or with this I've got this customer inquiry or well I'm not sure you know just just do your best and see what happens it was such a normal conversation (laughs) uh, that was so healthy yeah, it's it's brilliant to watch. I'm um I'm interested to know where your first sort of taste of of sport was and and where it all started for you and even when you first got into rowing. So, yeah, you can start wherever you want to start there. Mm. Well, rowing came quite late. Rowing came at university and my first experience of sport at school was not very positive. Um right. I wanted to be good, but I apparently wasn't and I was told that I was no good and I was told I didn't have a very good attitude and all sorts of things so I was declared not sporty I think when I look back I was quite tall and probably a bit uncoordinated and I wasn't particularly fast at running which seemed to be the thing that everybody that sort of dictated whether you were sporty or not Mm. Uh, which is sort of slightly ironic given that we are a nation that wins medals sitting down it seems so yeah. that sort of <laughs> didn't show a lot of a lot of vision from from those PE teachers so I had a frustrated um a sporting experience at school really uh I mean I what I loved watching the Olympics I didn't have a very sporty family but I always would watch the Olympics and just sort of watched it like you watch a Hollywood film or thing mm. just going oh wow this is so amazing and then when I got to university um quite by coincidence really uh I ended up rowing I actually was offered to row at the beginning and said no because I said I'm not very sporty it involves getting up really early in the morning and it's quite a full-on sport so that's not going to work for me is it 
Um, <laughs> so initially I said no, and they'd come to me because I was tall, and obviously being tall is is a is a real advantage in rowing mm. for the length of stroke, length of arms and legs, levers. Um, so initially I didn't, but a few weeks later, lots of my people who were becoming friends were all kind of doing this novice, crazy learning to row thing and loving it. And they had a gap when somebody got injured in their boat. And they sort of begged me to just sit in for a few days, just even a couple of weeks so they could do this first term novice race. And after a lot of persuasion in the student bar, I finally agreed. Um, so it's a very inauspicious beginning. And I was quite hopeless in the first day, as everybody is. Yeah. But I really loved it. I fell in love with the sport. And actually, I'm very grateful I fell in love with it without any aspirations or pressures or expectations. Mm. I just really loved being in a boat on the river with friends. Uh, it's a sort of sport that you can't opt out of. At school, when I'd been playing hockey or something, I felt self-conscious. I felt not very good. And I ended up sort of almost running away from the ball because I didn't want to get it wrong. Uh, whereas here, you have to get on with it. You can't get out. I mean, it's really hard to get out. And it's not a great option in a cold river in the middle of winter. Yeah. So, um, so then you have to opt in. And that was a really lovely sort of team, understanding what it's like to be part of a team where you just have to do the best you can do, but always in time, you know, as much as you can in time with people around you and also being aware of the environment you're in, the water, the weather and all of that. And so I've just, for me, it was a kind of magical introduction to, to sport. And then over time it emerged that I had the right physiology that, yeah. you know, I loved it. I wanted to get to the next level all the time. And then the sort of the ladder, the rungs of the ladder appeared one at a time that mm. eventually led to the Olympics. Was there a moment where you felt, okay, I'm transitioning here from thinking, yes, I'm enjoying it. And, and I think that's a beautiful, I've, I've not had someone sort of describe their their start of sport as, as almost picturesque as that in a way where it's, it's actually you're, you're out there just I'm rowing a boat with my friends. <laughs> like that's what I'm doing. And I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful way to start. But as always with pros and once you start getting into competition, there will be that inner sort of sense of, okay, I want to do well. Success is something I want to win races. Was there, was there a transition you felt? Was it brought into you through coaches or, or the environment you were in? And there was, and 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 I and I sort of you know re regret that in a way, but it was part of just the the culture of the nineties almost. That when I left mm -hmm. university and went on the pathway to try and go to trials and get into the into the senior team, I was sort of presented with, this is what's required to be an Olympic athlete. It's really serious. It's yeah. not fun. Don't expect to have any fun. Fun comes when you stand on the top step which of course, if we go back to that earlier point, that's a very dangerous thing. Yeah, then yeah. You think life is going to be wonderful if you, if you can only get to the top step. And of course, if you do get to the top step, then, which not many people do, it's not always uh, kind of wonderful. And, and of course, then anything less is, is failure. Um, mm. and, and there was also this sense of you had to be the toughest person there. You had to show no weakness. You had to be the last woman standing. You had to, you know, there were the mantras of don't respect um, don't give respect to your opponents. Um, you know, all of these things that actually weren't helpful to performance and they weren't helpful to my experience either. And for me, certainly, it, you know, I wasn't really able to thrive. I was just piling in energy and commitment, but not really enjoying it. And actually, sadly, not, not going as fast as I could in a rowing boat either, putting my energy mm -hmm. into the wrong things, really. Um, and it was only when sports psychology started to come in with this performance thinking, separating out performance and results, when uh, I was able to, I suppose, you know, almost step back a bit, having failed in my first two mm. Olympics, take a year out, I kind of think, you know, I, I want to have one more go and I want to try and make it slightly different. 
that then, you know, I came back with a bit of a broader perspective on, uh, you know, what else am I gaining if I don't win a medal? Uh, you know, a question that seemed like heresy to ask, but actually was the key to really, you know, in, embracing what I was getting from learning to recover, learning to be part of a team, learning to be resilient, learning to push my boundaries, all of those things. And by valuing those, that actually drove my performance as well. Yeah, I think you said it there as well. Perspective, it sounds like a, a, a great shift because that's, and it almost sounds like, and I think Francis had said this as well, and, and any athlete that I've probably spoken to sort of that was starting in the 80s 90s it really does feel like especially in Britain that we were almost still in this post-war stoic philosophy um, that was kind of very protective very very gritty and we'll build it back strong and you just got to fight 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 for it um, and, I, and I think that like what we've spoken previously we are in transitioning out of that whether it's general it obviously will be generational but do you do you feel that those experiences were or what do you feel you've learned most from those experiences for yourself personally and and I guess professionally so I think that narrative is very deeply ingrained uh it's part of what we see in the history books battles Mm. you know the language that you were citing there it's all about this sort of soldiering on battling on there's Mm. so much so many sort of aggressive violent metaphors that we use in language that we use in sport that we use in business we use in education um, so it is quite deeply grained if you think of those classic heroic stories, the Hollywoodization of sports or of life. Um, so it is not easy to shift. But the challenge is life isn't like that in the 21st century. We don't mm. fight battles in a conventional way that you win and lose, even in a military sense. Yeah. It's not like that. And actually, most of the big social issues of our time are complex, whether it's environmental change social inequality, global health. These aren't things that you can win at that Mm. are finite. They're things that actually we need to think of in a different way. So it is really important we try and shift our thinking to be more collaborative, to see the ongoing journey rather than any one moment where somebody is better than somebody else. Mm. So I do think it's really deeply ingrained and and therefore we have to be quite conscious about calling it out, challenging it, reframing what's actually useful to whatever endeavour we're engaged in, sport or, Mm. or outside of sport. And I think that has been the journey that I've been on over the last period, really, since since retiring. I guess, you know, part, part of that journey was when I went to the third Olympics and tried to create that different experience. And it's been making sense of that, but also seeing it occur in other parts of my life, working now as a, as a coach, as an executive coach with businesses, seeing the same winning obsessed language, holding people back from yeah. working effectively in teams, collaborating and coming up with better solutions, trying to outdo people around them that actually inhibits the collective effort. It's that that's made me think, gosh, we, we really need to challenge this in, in lots of spheres. Yeah. So when you when you actually got to that third games and you've got that success, you silver medal. So how did it feel for you? Like what was the emotions that you were feeling? Did you feel that sense of fulfillment, that success um, that we've been speaking about? So I think I felt a whole range of emotions, you know, I mean, the irony of it being silver, really, I thought, oh, there we go. I'm, I'm still first loser. Um, you know, that's 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 how a group of people will will see that. 
um, I think I felt sort of relief and just joy that taking a different approach had been worth it, not just for the medal, but because of the journey I'd been on that would then continue, uh, you know, after retirement. And I had got things from this experience that I would take with me. So I think I felt that sense of breakthrough that this wasn't just about a moment on the podium, but actually I could really enjoy that moment as well. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's so hard. It's almost like hard ingrained. You were saying there, like it's just so it can be so hard ingrained into an athlete's mindset that the outcome and the result is what matters. But it's 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 a fight in a fight that you have to have to to be able to value it that success in a different way and view it in a different way and reframe it, like you said. So yeah, I totally agree with you um, wholeheartedly. Let's um, let's shift gear slightly. So post career became a diplomat. Now, this is a fascinating area. Like, what, what, where did that come about? Why was it something you had an eye on after or during mm. your career? Um, and, and how come you got into to that space? So it's actually what I'd always wanted to do, much more than the right. sport had been, because actually I'd gone up to university to uh, read languages. I did a master's after that in international politics. That was the career that I had been really interested in from my sort of studying and, and, and interest in that side. And it was then the rowing at university that took me off on this other tangent for, well, what ended up as sort of nearly 15 years. But I had always kind of still had this interest. I'd fought hard to continue doing some postgraduate study, which had helped me to manage the sports world as well. And that was quite yeah. difficult to have another strand, to have something that wasn't rowing, that, that was, you know, very much came second to rowing, but really helped me, again, from a mental health perspective, to have something different to think about on the days when training hadn't gone so well, mm -hmm. and to have something that would potentially be important for, for a future after rowing. And so it was really going back to that, um to see whether that door would open to become a diplomat to join the foreign office and it did and, it, and that's what I did in that year off after the, the second failed olympics if you like I thought right that's it I'm, I've got to create a different life uh and it, it gave me the biggest dose of perspective you could possibly have to show me that clearly going backwards in a boat as fast as possible is not the most important thing in the world which mm. you could have felt it was in those previous sort of six years um, it gave me a sense of operating a different world, but it also brought me again to this question of what does success look like and these fights between zero-sum game thinking uh, and in a negotiating world when people have been fighting often and in conflict situations, when they are uh, coming into a negotiation thinking, I can only succeed if you don't get what you want, if my success is predicated upon you failing if you like to get to get your things then we never got anywhere we never got anything sustainable and so a lot of our work was almost psychological shifting ourselves how can we get to a place where success is a win-win solution where we all gain where we're all part of a bigger pie if you mm. like than we can possibly be if we're just one of us is crowned king of a, of a tiny pie um, and so, again, it fascinated to me to see success in such a, a different, bigger world, but still coming back to, you know, if we didn't have that framed, then there was no point negotiating, really, if we were just zero, you know, in a zero sum game situation, as, as we often were for a long time. So it was really interesting to see success come out in a different world. Was there anything you, you almost took from your sporting career into that world of um, being a diplomat and also perhaps some things that you learned from being a diplomat that you felt 
really would have benefited being a being an athlete. You mentioned their perspective, and I think obviously right now there is a huge situation going on in Afghanistan. Like yeah. the the Taliban have just reclaimed power, and I think there there's no with the pictures and the videos that we're seeing coming out of that. It just really does build a perspective of what mean yeah. what what life means really like what issues that we're facing in the world what issues we face personally societally and i mean you can feel a sense of gratitude in a nation like the uk where you're you're like well we don't have this situation going on um but yeah kind of going back is there things that you have learned from those that role as a diplomat to to being an athlete and in sport I hope you're right. I hope there is a real gratitude. I feel that sense of immense privilege that yeah. we are never threatened like that, particularly as a woman. I feel so I, yeah, I t- yeah, for that the is... Afghan women. And, uh, you know, I I really hope that, that we do stop and think about our responsibility towards refugees as a result without wanting to get too political. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me... The constant learning approach that had become that part of a performance mindset, just thinking about, you know, win or lose, what are you going to do that's going to help you get better next time? was so helpful in those final years to getting away from a kind of, if you win, everything's great. If you lose, everything's terrible mindset. And that was immensely helpful in a complex ongoing negotiation situation. What can we do? What small things can we keep doing to just move this forward? What's possible? How can we do this slightly Mm. differently to create momentum where there isn't a lot of momentum? So that constant learning piece, I think, was enormously helpful. And the sense that there isn't just... Uh, you know, it's messy. There isn't just one perfect outcome. Uh, we've got to explore what's possible. We've got to keep exploring, if you like. And I think the sort of relationship piece um, resonated in both that um, these are worlds that were based on relationships, whether it's rowing in a crew at an Olympics. You need to understand and connect with each other beyond just the fact that you're great athletes. You need to understand why you're there. Why are you on this journey to try and row a boat faster than anyone else in the world? What does it mean to you? Why is it important to you? And it's different for different people in a crew. And getting to that level of understanding was really important in order to really be effective under pressure together. And I think a similar thing would happen in that diplomatic world where we're all the time building relationships. Our whole business was about building partnerships and looking to connect with people beyond the issues we were negotiating in in, in the day. Um, and, And when you have that sort of creating that greater understanding, then you can explore new avenues. But if you don't have any connection with people, and sometimes this is creating connections across cultural, historic, linguistic, political barriers, so it's not easy. If you don't have that, you're not really going to be able to get anywhere on these incredibly difficult, intricate uh, and uh, you know, complex issues. So the relationship building piece at a deeper level was something that I felt, you know, uh, came out of both of those experiences and something that I take now into the work I do with organizations mm. to make sure we're not dehumanizing our, our companies, our businesses, that we are enabling ourselves to connect. I find that often a lot of the business world is driven by tasks by what's on the electronic calendar, by meetings, by objectives, yeah. by targets, by spreadsheets, but not the humans who are creating whatever it is you're recording in your spreadsheet. And actually a lot of the experience and in fact, a lot of the challenge of lockdown has made us realize the importance of being part of coherent groups. We are social animals, we want to belong. 
And we need to have relationships that go beyond just the transactional level. That's what I think sport has such a powerful um, role in society for from young people. I'm a big advocate that I believe like physical education is our biggest strength in, in the education system mm. because it's the one thing that will just not... Li- understanding your body your physical your mental health will just not leave you but also in sports the 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 ability to create relationships to communicate to to be a part of a team all of those things that you can learn throughout it are so transferable in everything and i've seen it with young people that working in underprivileged areas of the uk and and seeing how sport is like the the language that will connect it all and do that jigsaw puzzle for you and it engages people and even from a a an acceptance of other societies so i'm very privileged in the sense of playing cricket a sport where i could travel around the world i have such an understanding of many different ethnicities religions i, I play with muslim sikhs and and everyone is just in one team and you're all literally not for a better phrase rowing the boat together so you are your your understanding of it and and any society that i've been in in other parts of the world that have not had that multi-diverse world that's where the sort of narrow-mindedness comes in that's where the the lack of open-mindedness is and, and being able and accepting of others but also the lack of skills that people have to just purely from a basic standpoint communicate just communicating to other people in a way where you're both trying to you're both trying to win from that scenario and that's where i i I love i've seen over probably the last few months where sport has and the olympics shows it as well how big a role it plays in the world for our societies so i think the the next shift i'd like to make is towards your book and understand a little bit more about the the research and the the sort of motivation behind it um what what drove you to doing something like this then it's not an easy task writing a book i imagine and um yeah what was what was it behind the the long win he was really making sense of a lot of the different points we've discussed in this conversation it did take me about four years to write i thought i'd come i felt well in between you know life and family and work and all of those things and, and an ongoing process of yeah, researching, interviewing, because I was challenging something that's so deeply ingrained. I felt I needed to explore in the first part of the book, how have we got to this point? How have we got to define success as we have? Looking sort of through history, language, or this scientific piece that people say, oh, we're just wired to win. Actually, a part of our brains is wired to win, but a part of our brains is actually wired to appreciate meaning and purpose mm. and, and can actually then tap into much deeper motivations um, which can fuel performance. So I wanted to look at how do we got here, then to look at how it's playing out. And so I look at, you know, how success can actually hold us back in sports, in politics, in education and in business. So again, drawing on my experiences, but also going out there and talking to people. And then the, the final section was really setting out a different approach, the long win. What does that look like? 
based around my three C's of clarity, constant learning and connection so that we really prioritize clarifying what matters at a broader level with a longer term perspective, with a sense of purpose behind it, not just clarifying, oh, it's X medals or it's, you know, something short term that's easy to put in a table. Thinking about what does that mean? What is it? What's the longer lasting impact that we want to have? This constant learning approach to give us the resilience to keep learning regardless of results, because that actually optimizes the results we get over time as well. And then to prioritize the human connections and everything that we do. So this is the work that you're taking into organizations that you do now. And and are you, are you finding there are, uh, so what are the sort of commonalities that you might find in an organization that, that this is helping you, I, I guess, fix for not a bit of a word? So this, I mean, the, the, the three seasons really come out of the work I've been doing over the last sort of eight years or so in organisations. I have always found that going back to clarifying what really matters mm. is always so helpful because we sort of assume that people know what matters. And then we find when we talk to them, we've all got a different view of it. And we also assume that certain things are meaningful and actually a, a figure, a, a profit margin or a, you know, a number actually isn't meaning to, meaningful to people on a daily basis. We need to understand why. Why do we want to create this profit number and what's the impact we're going to have through doing it? And when we start to kind of deepen that narrative, then people really understand they're much more motivated. They're able to make better decisions. And and we kind of wake up that engagement, if you like. The constant learning approach is just yeah, part of a, a resilient mindset. And in work, there are lots of challenges. Of course, lockdown has brought even more for organizations where results didn't come. But you know what? The learning was still happening that enabled companies to adapt and to be ready for when things now you know, start picking up again. And then coming back to that point about just connecting. So these were themes you know, that, that had emerged from all the work that I'd done and that had emerged from my earlier sporting experiences. So it was really crystallizing those and then explaining those uh, and bringing it together in, in one place. Yeah, from what I'm hearing of this whole conversation has been about this constant learning process. And I think, funny enough, I've just re- recorded for um, another episode of the podcast about questioning and sort of questioning and asking questions of of others but also asking questions of yourself and that being a part of that whole learning experience and and we we tend to just shy away from whether it's through egotistical protection and and to to not be seen as knowing the answer or not knowing the answer we always want to see as if we we have the right answer but any athlete or anyone that's been on this podcast, the common themes are that I was just constantly looking for that thing that I could learn from, where I could just get a little yeah. bit better. And I think it, it's a it's a vulnerable process because it sounds like it's a, a billboard, like just keep improving and, and it can be thrown down your throat through adverts and always look for those one percenters. But it is a vulnerable process. It's a very open process of being able to to always ask that question, look for that learning. And because it's too easy to just hide from it. It's too easy to to go into your shell and just be and protect it. Yeah, it is. So I, at the end of the chapters around clarity, constant learning connection, I have a set of questions mm. to sort of summarize, start reflecting on these. I think you're right. And for me, part of the problem comes from a little bit our education system where we're taught at a very early age that we need to have the right answer. I would much prefer us to be encouraging children to think up good questions Um, you know and and that's where where we actually you know we create this finite expectation uh, that then is so false when you 
get out in the real world uh, I feel very frustrated sometimes around how we um, test and assess which is something that's very much being debated as, as the results come out over the summer um, and how there is this sense again it, it's like the metal table it's such a narrow narrow snapshot it's almost more damaging well, I think it is mm. more damaging than the metal table it's really one day and when we go when we're at work um, you know, life isn't like that. You know, climate change isn't solved on one day by yeah. one person. It, it's just meaningless to be assessing people in this way. And what I see when I'm working in leadership programs and the work I do at business schools is that organizations are, are, are struggling to find people who have skills that enable them to be innovative and collaborative and to, to lead where there are no right answers. So we set people up almost to think in this finite way and then release them out in a world where nothing is finite anymore. No. Um, and so I think questions, we should be doing much more to develop our ability to ask questions and to sit with them, just yep. to hold the question. Don't have to answer it immediately, but to explore what's behind the question. Where does it take us and what different answers might we get? So again, some of my coaching work is around, okay, let's just hold that question before we try and answer it. Uh, and, and think about, you know, what we bring to that, what others would bring to that, how others would see it. We don't have to close it off really quickly. There are probably multiple answers. And we want to explore those before we then decide what, what we're going to do. Yeah, that's so, so true. And how different people will see that differently. Look, I'm very conscious of um, of your time. Thank you so much for for giving it. I think the the last thing that I, I would ask and, and, um, and all of the the books the links to the book i'll put in the show notes for people to go and grab um and as well as contact to, to reach out to you um but is there a is there a person perhaps a quote a book maybe even a documentary that you would always recommend someone that all has had an impact in in your own life oh i mean you can see sort of a bookshelf behind me i'm an yeah. avid <laughs> it's a very, um, very nice looking so, bookshelf. Um, so you know, there's more books piled off on the floor as well that you can't see that have sort of my books, my bookshelves are overflowing. Um, I mean, I really enjoy Matthew Syed's writing. I think he's somebody yes. who questions, who challenges the status quo. And so I think whether you read his Sunday Times columns or whether you look at block, uh, black box thinking or rebel ideas, um, I think he's a really good person to, um, yeah, to, to kind of engage with. He does podcasts, all sorts of things. Mm. Um, he's someone who challenges our mindset, challenges assumptions. He was somebody I discussed the idea of the book with as, as well. So I would point, point them in that direction. I'd read Bounce as well, and I think Bounce was a, a real, mm. really challenged pe assumptions of all sorts of thinking of where excellent comes from. So yeah, he's a great choice, Matthew Side. Um, all of those books. Look, Kath, thank you so much for um, for for coming on and, and giving up your time for this. It's been a, a fascinating conversation and, and a really really interesting. We could have gone into many different rabbit holes down politics and and sport and it's in society. So, um, but I I appreciate you coming on and, and thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Raising Your Game podcast with Kath Bishop. I hope you've enjoyed that episode. And if you have, then like I mentioned, the only way and the cheapest way in which you can support this podcast, which is grown purely through word of mouth, is by subscribing. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with a friend, colleague, family member, anyone you know. Or if you haven't subscribed already, whether you're a long-time listener or a brand new listener, then head over to your platform that you're listening to and just hit that subscribe button. It really does 
mean the world to me. Like I mentioned, this podcast can only grow and has only grown through word of mouth through you guys so i thank you so much if you want to find more from me then you can head over to instagram at lewis hatchet or if you want to find more about the podcast then head over to lewishatchet.com forward slash podcast so that's lewishatchet.com forward slash podcast so thanks again for joining me and i will see you guys next time Thank you.